Well, the new year is underway. If you made goals or resolutions, I hope they survived the first week. If they did, congratulations. One down. 51 to go. New year brings a lot of hope and optimism and many people, myself included, use the opportunity of a new year to set goals, make resolutions, reestablish priorities. And this is a good thing. I think we all know that resolutions and goals will only get you so far. You won't get very far with your goals or resolutions if you don't have resolve. We are in the middle of a sermon series going through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews was originally a letter written by someone whose name we do not know to a group of Jewish Christians in the first century. And the Christians to whom this author wrote were facing doubts, temptations to let go of Jesus. They may have been losing confidence in the truth and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason they were tempted, the reason they were experiencing doubts, the reason that they may have been inclined to let go, to stop following Jesus, is because they had experienced hard times. One of the images that comes to my mind when I think about the Christians to whom this author was writing is, is that of like a heavyweight boxer in the ring who has sustained numerous body blows and is trying hard just to stay on his feet, to keep going, to keep fighting. And the trainer, the coach is in the ring shouting, come on, keep going, keep going, you can do this, stay in it. Well, like a boxer, the Christians in the first century had sustained body blows, so to speak. They had been ridiculed for their faith in Christ. They had been slandered. Some of them had lost their property. Some of them had been imprisoned. Following Jesus had proven to be very hard. Of course, this should not have been a surprise to them. As Jesus described following him in terms of denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him. Nevertheless, when the rubber meets the road, it's hard. Doubts creep in. Temptation becomes more powerful. The author of Hebrews saw signs that though they had persevered in following Jesus to this point, they wanted to give up. Many of them were not growing and maturing in their faith. They were losing confidence in the truth and power of the gospel. Some were neglecting to gather together with the church. And because of this, he exhorted them to hold fast to Jesus and the truth of the gospel. He wanted to bolster their spiritual resolve so they wouldn't give up or turn back. Over the last couple of years, we too have gone through some tough times. By we, I mean we, the church, Christians in the U.S., including our congregation. Not to the degree, not the same severity as the Christians to whom the author was writing in Hebrews, but nevertheless, we've gone through hard times. We've gone through 
COVID and all the disruption associated with COVID by the virus and the responses to the virus by governing authorities. We've seen community disrupted, our normal rhythms disrupted. We've seen a lot of division over the different aspects of COVID. We've seen divisions over many other things, including politics and justice and matters of race. We've also had many terrible examples of sin, abuse, and hypocrisy within the church. If we're honest, we've gone through some hard times. And sadly, some Christians, including some among us, have responded to all these challenges by losing confidence in the gospel, becoming stagnant in their faith, devaluing the church, and deprioritizing gathering with the church. And I believe the Lord in his wisdom and kindness has us in Hebrews because we need the message of Hebrews. I believe the Lord has us in Hebrews to bolster our spiritual resolve because we too have doubts. We too are tempted to let go to place our confidence elsewhere. One of the most significant ways the Lord used the author of Hebrews to strengthen the resolve of the church in the first century was through his teaching on the glorious person and work of Jesus Christ. And our passage this morning is Hebrews chapter 8. One thing you may notice as I read through Hebrews chapter 8 is that there are no commands in this chapter, no imperatives, no do this. But that's okay, because sometimes what we need is to understand truth. We need commands. God's commands are good. They are good for us. We want to heed God's commands. At the same time, sometimes what our faith needs is to better understand the glorious truth of the gospel. And this chapter helps grow our knowledge and understanding of Jesus and what he's done for us. At the same time, we also know that Hebrews chapter 8 fits within the broader context of Hebrews. And we know in the broader context of Hebrews, there are commands, there are exhortations, there are imperatives. And those commands include the exhortation to hold fast to Jesus, to keep going, to persevere in the faith, to not throw away your confidence. So we know that Hebrews is meant to help us, who are followers of Jesus, persevere in the faith, even when we experience hard times, even when we experience body blows. We are called and commanded to keep going. Two things we need to see and understand as we read through chapter 8. First, Christ obtained a better ministry. And second, Christ mediates a better covenant. My prayer is that just as the teaching of chapter 8 was meant to bolster the spiritual resolve of the Christians in the first century, so too will it bolster our resolve. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 8 and I encourage you to follow along. 
Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this high priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were here on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Chapter 4, verse 14 through chapter 10, verse 25 provides us with an extended argument on the superiority of Jesus as a high priest over and against the Levitical priesthood, which was established under the old covenant that the Lord entered into with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. And we find ourselves in the middle of this argument in chapter 8. And we see that the author is seeking to be clear and ensure that his readers are following the argument that he is making. Love how he begins chapter 8. Now, here is the point. In case you're not tracking with me, in case you're not following what I'm laying down, let me just be explicit. Here is the point. This high priest that we need, that I've been discussing, we need a great high priest who is without sin. We need a superior high priest. This kind of high priest that we need, we have him. We have this high priest that we need. His name is Jesus. And as I mentioned here in chapter 8, there are two points of emphasis. First, Christ obtained a ministry that is much more excellent. He obtained a ministry that was more excellent than all the priests who ministered under the old covenant. The priesthood the Lord established for Israel under the old covenant was a precious gift to his people. And the priests who served had an incredible privilege. They were set apart for service through the anointing of oil, the sacrifice of animals, and wearing special clothing. They mediated between God and Israel. Only they could enter the inner parts of the tabernacle to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. 
they were charged with keeping guard over the whole congregation at the tent of meeting. One writer said the old covenant priests stood between the presence of God in his sanctuary and the ordinary Israelites, bearing the blood of the sacrifices and atoning for the people's sins so that they would not be destroyed. The high priest in particular served this mediatorial role. Only he could enter the holiest portion of the tabernacle and temple, the Holy of Holies, and then only once a year on the Day of Atonement. Having the priests as old covenant mediators was a great benefit to the people, for the priests enabled the people to worship the Lord without being put to death. So the Levitical priesthood was a good gift that God gave to his people. But the Levitical priesthood was not perfect and had significant limitations. For one, the priests who served were sinners. The priests who served had to make sacrifices to atone for their own sins, lest their presence defiled the place of God's dwelling, the tabernacle. Also, they died. The priests who served in the Old Covenant died, and therefore they could not continue on their ministry. Their ministry was limited by their mortality. Moreover, none of the sacrifices they offered could fully and finally atone for all the sins of the people. We also see that ordinary Israelites could not enter into the holy places. Only the high priest could enter into the holiest place, the special place of God's dwelling. And so the ministry of the priests did not allow for the people to enjoy the fullness of God's holy presence. While the ministry of the priests on behalf of the people of Israel under the old covenant was good, the ministry of Jesus on our behalf is immeasurably better. What the author points to in verses 1 through 5 in describing the superiority of Jesus' ministry is the location of his ministry. Unlike the priests who ministered in the earthly tabernacle and later in the temple that was built in Jerusalem, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and ministers in the heavenly place, the place of God's dwelling. Not a temporary place of God's dwelling in a tabernacle or a temple, but in the permanent, eternal, glorious place of God's dwelling. Jesus was not a priest on earth in that he was not a Levitical priest according to the law that God gave to the Israelites at Mount Sinai through Moses. When Jesus was on earth, he did not offer sacrifices at the temple as a Levitical priest. No, his ministry is superior to the ministry at the tabernacle as the tabernacle was but a copy and a shadow of the heavenly realities. When Moses was instructed to construct the tabernacle in the book of Exodus, he was told to make everything according to the pattern that was shown him on Mount Sinai. The words copy, shadow, pattern reveal the typological role of the tabernacle and its purpose 
in pointing to a greater reality. The earthly place of God's dwelling, the tabernacle, and later the temple, was the type that represented and pointed to the greater reality, which is God's dwelling in the heavens. Christ did not minister in the type, in the copy, in the shadow, in that which pointed to the greater reality. No, he ministers in the holy places, the true tent as the one seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. We've already begun to see the significance of this in chapter 6. In Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, we read, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A forerunner is one who goes ahead to a place where the rest are meant to follow. Jesus went into the heavenly places as our forerunner to open the way so that we can follow so that we too can enter into the special, holy, glorious place of God's dwelling. Unlike the priests who ministered in the tabernacle, the copy, the shadow, Jesus entered into the greater reality, the heavenly place of God's dwelling. Unlike the Israelites who were not able to follow the high priest into the holy of holies we are able to follow jesus into the holy place of god's dwelling jesus obtained a ministry that is far more excellent than any other no one else can do for us what jesus has done for us there is no better ministry than his ministry on our behalf if the Hebrew Christians in the first century to whom the author was writing were tempted to let go of Jesus, they were tempted to lose confidence in the gospel. If they were tempted to go back to their old practices and rituals and ceremonies under the old covenant, the author was saying, don't do it. That is worse than futile. You are giving up the real thing for that which meant to, was meant to point to the real thing. Don't go back to the copy. Don't go back to the shadow. Don't go back to the type. Hold fast to the real thing. Hold fast to Jesus and the gospel. Similarly, if we are tempted to drift away from Jesus, we must remember his ministry on our behalf. There is nowhere else you can go to receive the forgiveness of all your sins. There is nowhere else you can go to gain a clean conscience. There is nowhere else you can go to be made whole. There is nowhere else you can go 
to enjoy a relationship with God. There's nowhere else. Hold fast to Jesus. Maintain your confidence in the gospel. Understand what Jesus has done for you. Remember the ministry of Jesus on your behalf. Do not take it for granted. Do not think lightly of what Jesus has done. Remember it. Rejoice in it. Delight in it. Remember it. Meditate on it. Dwell on it. His ministry is more excellent. The second thing we see in our passage today is that he mediates a better covenant. The night before he was crucified, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper with his disciples. In Matthew 26, verses 26 through 28, we read, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. When he said this, he was making a significant statement. He was declaring to them that he was initiating, establishing a new covenant. And the new covenant that he was establishing was spoken of by the prophets in the Old Testament. Jesus was saying that what was prophesied hundreds of years before was coming to pass through him. The prophet Jeremiah spoke at length about a new covenant that the Lord would establish. The author of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah here in chapter 8. And when he quoted him, he was quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. When you read the book of Jeremiah, you will see that he had a tough job. Jeremiah was called to proclaim God's word to God's people, which was a word of judgment. Jeremiah had to declare to God's people, the people of Judah, that judgment was coming, that they were going to be destroyed. At one point, he was commanded to take a jar take and go before the elders and the priests and smash it and say, this is what the Lord is going to do to Judah, into the capital city of Jerusalem. As you can imagine, this was not a popular message. This is not what people wanted to hear. They wanted to hear good things. They wanted to have their ears tickled. But Jeremiah had to deliver God's word. And because he faithfully preached and proclaimed God's word, he faced persecution. He was punished and persecuted for faithfully proclaiming the word of God. But even in the midst of judgment, there were words of hope. And we see this in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, which are quoted in Hebrews 8. In this passage, we see how the Lord referenced the covenant that he made with his people at Mount Sinai. He recalled how he delivered them out of bondage in Egypt and brought them 
to Mount Sinai. And the Lord told Moses that he would enter into a covenant with the Israelites before he delivered them from bondage in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, we read, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. What a gracious act of God to redeem them out of bondage in Egypt. To lead them through a mighty hand, an outstretched arm through the wilderness, to Mount Sinai, and to enter into this covenant where he said, I will be your God, and you will be my people. What a gift, what a privilege it was for the Israelites to have the one true living God enter into a promise relationship or a covenant with them. He set them apart among all the peoples of the earth. He said, you will be my people. I will dwell with you. And he established his covenant with them where he would be their God and they would be his people, meaning they would worship him and worship him alone. They would obey his laws and his commands, which were not burdensome, but were good and revealed the way to live the good and blessed life. And he promised to do good to them. He promised to give them a good land. He promised to protect them from their enemies. He promised to give them prosperity and abundance. The Lord promised them good things that they did not deserve. And they, in return, were to be faithful to him. To not worship any false gods, but to be devoted and faithful to him. Delighting in him, worshiping him, obeying him. But the problem was, the Lord's people did not continue in his covenant. We see in that passage quoted from Jeremiah that they did not continue in his covenant. The people of Israel were unfaithful to the Lord. Rather than worshiping the one true and living God, they worshiped false gods. Rather than obeying his good commands, they practiced all kinds of immorality. They perpetuated all kinds of of injustice, and they completely and utterly lived like the pagan nations around them. They rejected his covenant. But that was not the end of the story. Whereas the people of God were judged because they broke the covenant, the Lord promised to establish a new and better covenant. And what would be so great about the new covenant? Why was it better? The Lord promised to put his law into the hearts and minds of his people rather than merely having the law on tablets or scrolls they would have the law written on their hearts and minds what was he describing he was describing inner transformation the lord would change them he would change their hearts and minds so that they would know his law and delight in his law and walk in obedience to him rather than rebelling against him and rejecting him and experience the judgment that accompanies rejecting the Lord. 
They had the law. They had God's law that he revealed to them. And his laws were good, and they were good for them. But they couldn't keep them. They could not remain faithful to the Lord. And so rather than enjoying his blessing, rather than enjoying his presence among them, they experienced judgment. So God said, because of that, I'm going to establish a new covenant. I'm going to write my law in people's hearts and minds so that they will remain faithful to me. And those under the new covenant, rather than rebelling against the Lord, will reflect his righteous character and enjoy being his people, walking faithfully with him. Under the new covenant, all of God's people will know the Lord personally and intimately. This is possible because he removes all our sins and puts his laws into our minds and writes them on our hearts. Jesus is the mediator of this new and better covenant because he gave his body and shed his blood for us. He made the way for us to enjoy a restored relationship with God. How awesome is that? God's people are not faithful to the Lord. Okay, God is going to establish a covenant where he will make his people faithful so that we can enjoy him, so that we can know him, so that we can experience his good presence. There is nothing more important. There is nothing greater. There is nothing more satisfying than knowing the Lord. If you are not a Christian, we're glad you're here, and we hope that you too will know the joy that comes from walking with the Lord, from having a personal, intimate relationship with Him. We hope that you will know that we have all sinned and fallen short and deserve judgment rather than God's blessing. We deserve to be separated from Him rather than to enjoy His presence. Yet God in his kindness and his mercy has provided a way for our relationship with him to be reconciled. For our relationship with him to be restored. He's provided a way for us to enjoy the blessing that comes from knowing the Lord. And he's done so by providing Jesus Christ as the savior of the world. Jesus Christ, the son of God, came into the world as the savior of the world. And he lived a perfect life without sin, which we have all failed to do. And then he went to the cross willingly to take the punishment for our sins, the sins of his people. He endured the wrath of God in our place for our sins so that we can receive the forgiveness of all our sins, past, present, and future. He was put to death on the cross. He was buried in a tomb. And three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering death. He was vindicated in his resurrection. And God demonstrated that he accepted Christ's sacrifice on our behalf through his resurrection from the grave. Jesus appeared to hundreds of people proving that he was alive, that he is alive. And then he ascended into heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, ministering on our behalf in the holy place of God's presence. If you are not a Christian, my hope, my prayer for you is that you will understand that you are a sinner in need of salvation and that you will look to Christ believe in him and be saved 
the Jewish converts to Christianity suffered persecution for their faith and were tempted to go back to the old covenant practices to avoid persecution. The author of Hebrews was telling them that would be worse than futile. You'll be going back to the old way, the old covenant. You will be choosing judgment rather than salvation. For us, we must understand that the new covenant gives us something immeasurably greater than anything this world has to offer. The new covenant established by Christ gives us a relationship with God. Because of what Christ has done for us, we receive the love of God poured into our hearts and minds. We can lose things in this life. We can lose things in this world. We can lose all kinds of things. But if you are a Christian, you cannot lose the best thing that you have. And no one can take that from you. The best thing that you have is the love of God in Jesus Christ. And nothing can separate you from his love. You may suffer. You may face trials, hardships, disappointments. But through the new covenant established by Christ, you cannot lose the best thing that you have. Brothers and sisters, we need spiritual resolve. Spiritual resolve means we follow Jesus, even when it is hard. It means we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. It means we train ourselves for godliness. It means we continually delight ourselves in him. It means we persevere in holding fast to Jesus and confidence in the gospel. We need spiritual resolve because we will go through hard times. If we live faithfully and boldly for Jesus, we will face opposition because of our faith. We will also have times of disappointment when things we hope for will not turn out the way we want. We will have seasons of sorrow due to broken relationships, illness, and death. And when we face these challenges, when we sustain these body blows, we need spiritual resolve. How does this passage today help us with spiritual resolve? We will have spiritual resolve when Jesus is most precious to us. When Jesus is most precious to you, more precious to you than anything this world has to offer, you will remain faithful to him when you lose those other things. When you face trials, opposition, persecution, disappointment, when people let you down, you will faithfully follow him if he is most precious to you. If something is more important to you than Jesus, you will not choose to obey and follow him when the trials come. But Jesus will only be most precious to you when you know him and understand what he has done for you and what he will do for you. Jesus is most precious to you when you know him and understand his ministry and the covenant that he has established, that he's welcomed you into, that he's forgiven all your sins, past, present, and future, that he's restored your relationship with God, that he's promised you a future with him and his kingdom for all of eternity where there will be no sin, no sorrow, no pain, 
no death anymore. It will be all good all the time. Jesus will be most precious to you when you understand these things. Our passage reminds us of what Jesus has done for us. The glory of his work on our behalf. Remember what Christ has done and pray that the Lord will use your knowledge and understanding of Christ to strengthen your resolve so that you will follow Jesus even when it is hard, so that you will choose Christ over sin, so that you will grow rather than stagnate in your faith, so that you will commit yourself to the church rather than fall away. Brothers and sisters, may we grow in our knowledge and understanding of Christ, that we may have resolve to follow him and to hold fast to the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the continuing, ongoing relevance of your word at all times for us. We thank you for the message of Hebrews. We thank you for the glorious teaching of Christ, who he is and what he's done for us. We thank you for the way that knowing Christ and what he has done sustains us and bolsters our resolve. And we pray that will be true of us. We pray that you will grant us to be those who hold fast to Christ, who are confident in the truth and power of the gospel. Grant us to follow Jesus, even when it's hard to do so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.